Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, co-host of the show. I'm here with uh, just Aaron Lammer. Hi, Aaron. Two of three is a quorum. That's yeah. that's my view. If we that's can get right. two of the three hosts here, we can do an introduction. Who is on the show this week? This week I talked to Van Newkirk. Van is a writer for The Atlantic. He was also the host of a show, a podcast a few years ago that I thought was amazing called Floodlines, which was the story of what happened with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I somehow failed to invite him on the show after that podcast came out. Then he had a new one that is just out called Holy Week, which is about the week after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and how that week changed the trajectory of the civil rights movement and American general. I also love this show. So I talked to him about all of that, about his writing, and uh, dipped back into Floodlines as well. So really enjoyed talking to him. You told me once that you've listened to Floodlines twice. I didn't know that listening to a narrative podcast twice was a thing, but I, I consider it high, high praise if, uh, if, you, if you broke the seal on that practice uh, in relation to the show. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how common that is. Someone to listen to all. What, the way what's a, what's a, what's the second? I'm curious. Like, I always feel like when I I'm not a big like rewatcher or rereader. I, like, I'm not even sure I've like I've maybe reread like three novels in my whole life. But usually when I rewatch a movie, I'm like, oh, I only remembered like eight percent of that movie. I don't rem- I didn't remember the entire middle part. What was it like revisiting a uh, a narrative podcast the second time? Yeah, similar. I mean, there were there were parts of the actual story that I forgot. And then I actually brought this up with Van. There's a part, he interviews the former FEMA, head of FEMA, Michael Brown, who played such a central role in like the Katrina response. And I remember that being just an incredible moment in the show. And it was it was better than I remembered it, actually. Like the detail of it and the actual moments were better than I remembered. So I actually, I, I recommend a second. If you love a podcast, I recommend a second listen all the way through if you've got the time. Well, I think like um, not to do a long form podcast in the introduction to a long form podcast, but while I've got you, uh, it like 
it's one of the reasons I think structure is really hard because by the time you get to the end of a podcast, you weren't paying attention to the structure of the beginning and how it was going to interface with the rest of the episodes. Cause you're just like, it's totally new. You're in a new thing for the first time. So I kind of sometimes feel like I can have the experience of I've heard a bunch of these narrative podcasts or, you know, any sort of a farm, but because I'm not a big revisitor, I never get the structure of the early parts while knowing the whole structure. Yeah. You can really, you, the second time you can kind of have more of an ear for that uh, and kind of see the moves that are being made as you're as you're being pulled through it so this is what happens when max is away we can just we can just chat vibe out chat yeah we can have a little chat well i guess i uh i would be remiss if i did not mention that the show is produced in partnership with vox media thanks to everyone over at vox now here's evan with van newkirk Van, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I I didn't actually put it together when I asked you to come on that it was in fact April 6th, which is two days after the anniversary of the Martin Luther King assassination and probably a busy time for you talking about the show, I imagine. So that was kind of happenstance. But I, I do want to start in the present with this show that you've just come out with. And I've, I'm a big fan of Floodlines and your, and your other works. So I want to kind of work backwards to that. First, how would you describe Holy Week to people? Holy Week is a narrative podcast series about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the week of uprisings in America that followed. So it's about a time that isn't often uh, a central point in documentaries about the movement, about America, but that I believe changed the country more than almost any other week. Now, when, when I listen to the show, this is something that rarely happens now to me ever. I literally did not know what it was about. When I started realizing what it was about, I did have a moment where I thought, oh, this is going to be like uh, a little bit true crimey about the assassination. This is going to be, you know, a little bit of a whodunit. I mean, there's, there's books about that, et cetera, et cetera. And then I hit this moment where you just refer to, quote unquote, the assassin, and then you kind of move on. And I wondered exactly that moment, am I ever going to hear the name of this assassin? As far as I remember, I did not hear it. I want to know first about that decision to not go down that road. Yeah, you don't hear the assassin's name ever. That's right. Um, And that is an intentional choice on our behalf. Mostly to signal what you just said. It's not a show about who killed Dr. King. It's not a show about sort of the, the, the gory details about what happened to King or the manhunt that followed or, you know, theories about involvement beyond the assassin. For us, number one, that is kind of where people gravitate when they think about King's death. They think about this sort of field of conspiracies. Um, They think about the actual moment of his killing. And part of the thesis of the show is that the manner of his killing is actually secondary to the fact that he's dead. And 
the fact that he's dead is such a, it's a hinge moment for so many, especially black Americans. And so we make that choice early on to telegraph that we are deprioritizing the usual angle of somebody revisiting King's assassination to take you somewhere else. And when you make that decision that you want to go somewhere else, I want to kind of get into the process of how you came to the stories that you did, that you wove together in the show. So just at a basic level, what is the kind of scouting process for finding people in the show? One example would be Vanessa Dixon, and maybe you can explain who that is. Like, how did you find her? Were you looking for someone like her to fit a storyline that you thought would be there? Or did you sort of scout widely? I'm interested, like, how you first kind of, like, got the pool of people that whose stories you were going to tell. Yeah, so the first stop for us, um, and I think this is true for Holy Week and Floodlines, is looking at news reports. It was very important to me early on to gather as much primary, often from the Washington Post, news reporting on what happened. And the Post very helpfully actually had a 10-year retrospective they did in 1978 that mentioned this woman, Vanessa Lawson Dixon. And she was a black kid in D.C. at the time in 68. And she went out and joined one of the riots on the east side of the city as did her uh, older brother. And so we tell the story of her and her brother and their involvement and their backstory. But we met her because I saw her in the news report, same as other people. I was going through news reports and seeing names and, and stories that were interesting. In D.C. and Baltimore and Memphis in particular, there's lots of oral histories where it's not stuff you want to take, you know, you don't, I don't want to take the tape from it. Those oral histories kind of are built for a different purpose. Hmm. But it's places where I can find interesting names of people who have stories and get to know them. Um, and then last, there's a lot of names in here, a lot of people in here who we just had to go and do old school door-to-door kind of reporting. We went, we looked at high school yearbooks and reunions, word of mouth, just trying to find people who were present on the streets in April 4th and 5th and 6th, 1968. And how far down the road do you feel like you typically go with someone before you know that their story, you want to go deep? Like Vanessa Dixon Lawson, you you go end to end with her. And at what point did you realize, oh, this is a person I want to kind of build parts of the story around? Well, I think the primary thing for me when I'm thinking about how to use a person's story, how to weave it into the larger story, is first emotion, the depth of emotion, how it makes me feel and how I believe it'll make the listener feel. You know, I think as far as a factual basis goes, there's a version of the show and There are lots of really good shows out there that do this where I can basically give you all the factual information myself. I don't really need, you know, to to lean on interviews for that. So for, then you think, what is the purpose of an interview? What is the purpose of getting to know someone? And I think it's people who have journeys, who have movement in their personal lives, who are one person entering a thing and who might be slightly different exiting a thing. And I think pretty critically for us, people who have done some thinking about it, 
in the intervening time. So Vanessa, I think if you if you listen, you you'll, you'll know she is someone who this moment of the riots in '68 really looms large in her life, and um, she has done a lot of thinking about it. It's obvious she remembers it well, which is an unappreciated obstacle for doing a podcast about 68. Mm. It's 55 years ago. Memory is difficult. And she's got a real emotional journey over the course of just a few days. And so for me, I think all the people we talked to that we stayed with, whether they were in the streets, whether they were in the movement, whether they were in the White House, they're people who I think, you know, enter this crisis and leave it with different perspectives. You mentioned that it was 55 years ago, and that struck me as, you know, that's one of the big differences between Floodlines and this show. And I wondered, you know, Floodlines, most of the people are still going to be around. Their memories are going to be a little bit sharper, but you've got people who are long gone from that week, you know, including maybe some prominent people from the movement like Ralph Abernathy and Hosea Williams, who have died. How frustrating was it to not be able to access people that you might have wanted to access? Well, it was really frustrating. You know, I think a lot of the people who have the firsthand knowledge we were looking for, especially in the movement space, they have since passed. There are a couple of folks who are still around, um, but who aren't really doing interviews. But I think once we got past that frustration, I decided to try to make those limitations a feature of the show. And, okay, so we thought, okay, if I can't get that, what kind of story can we tell? And we can tell you a story from below. We can tell you a story more of what's happening in the streets, in the rank and file, among people who don't necessarily figure into all of the big newspaper coverage, among people who are very much in the movement, who are activists, who are radicals, who don't have the name recognition of a Stokely Carmichael. And we can give you perspective from the actual machinery inside the White House, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the the big names who are the faces of the policy. I can tell you how they were getting coffee and who was coming for lunch uh, the day Lyndon B. Johnson, the time Lyndon B. Johnson found out about King's assassination. And to me, all those elements together make a compelling story. Yeah, I wondered how deliberate that was, because I feel like there's like a surface level aspect of this that I know that I wondered if you were studiously avoiding, like, you know, someone like Andrew Young, who was there when King was assassinated. I kind of thought, oh, maybe I'll hear his voice. But I know that story. But the story of John Merle Smith Mm -hmm. and the invaders and him meeting with King that same day, I've never heard that. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Like, did you know that story when you started reporting this? Well, I didn't. Um, I did not know John's story. I didn't know the story. Uh, I knew about these uh, Black power groups in Memphis that were there. I I went to Morehouse College. Julian Bond uh, was a professor in a class of mine. I first met Reverend Young my freshman year of school. So I think a lot of what you hear is me trying to find things that I had never heard before. Mm. So it is, you know, I've, I've heard Reverend Young's piece of this, and I think it's a very important piece of this, but it is elsewhere. 
it's in eyes on the prize. You know, you've, you've heard it. What I'm banking on our listeners haven't heard is stuff from people like John is, you know, going to John's house and hearing his, his mother talk to us. It's that level of texture and that perspective that isn't usually part of the big, you know, feature packages 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years out. And again, like this may be a known moment and uh, maybe I'm overly focused on it, but when in the, in the show, this moment where he, John Burl Smith describes meeting with King, going back to his apartment afterwards, his apartment has been ransacked, presumably by the authorities turning on the television. And the first thing he sees is Walter Cronkite. This to me was like an incredible moment in the show. And it made me wonder how do you conduct the interview in that moment? How does that come about? Well, John's an interesting case because he clearly has thought about his story as history. And, uh, you know, he obviously he presents it as such. Uh, there are storytellers who have an instinct to, you know, to, to giving the goods, hmm. uh, whether you, you're asking for them or not. And so John's one of those, which makes it both easier to get, you know, flash, but it's also a little bit more difficult when you want to go outside of what you've gotten before. And so I think that moment for John is part of his presentation of the moment. What we wanted to dig was I wanted to know how that felt. And so I think you've got that good moment, right? Where he goes and sees the TV. And the next thing I ask him is how that felt. And he's like, well, it's like the bottom dropped out. And so taking that step further from him being a somewhat well-rehearsed teller of his own story and trying to get into the interior of him then and now, that's to me what I view my goal as the interview in that situation is. And similarly, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just very taken with the different way that you told this story and a lot of the elements around it. And another moment where I kind of felt that was when you focus on the sanitation worker strike and there's this incredibly famous Martin Luther King speech, not as famous as I have a dream, but the, the mountaintop speech and in Memphis and you don't actually play that portion of the speech. Like the speech kind of fades into the background. And again, I wondered, is this deliberate? Could they not get the rights, you know, or like, is this a deliberate choice? I think in this case, this was deliberate. I wanted to set the tone and create a feeling as if King were no longer there. Um, I think a lot of the retrospectives that we do have, essentially it's, they give you the greatest hits highlights package of King speeches. Mm -hmm. And they say, this was an important man and he died. And for me, there's just something about that that seems kind of surface level. It doesn't, you know, number one, you always gravitate towards the things that are more famous that everybody knows already. And it's just a, you know, it, it's a repetition of the kind of memified or deified version of King. I thought that one thing we could do that would actually help get a bit underneath that was to have him be absent in the story, the way he was in real life. Hmm. And, and 
yeah, it, it, that was very much on purpose so that you, you, you hear his, you actually hear his voice maybe once in the show. And otherwise it's us describing the moment or us really just, uh, trying to describe that absence. And then how did you start to sort of narrow down from all the people's stories that you were collecting into a kind of coherent structure? Like at what point did that come together and how did that come together for you? This is, it took us a very long time. This was easily the most complicated and just elaborate narrative structure I've ever worked with on a thing. Um, and it took lots of trial and error. There were a lot of moments in this thing where nobody on the team had ever done what we were trying to do before. And there were lots of, you know, moments where we didn't think we could do it and lots of frustration banging our heads against the wall. I think what emerged as our guiding light was whenever we were in doubt, I tried to let the story of, you know, our interviewees lead. So for example, there's, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a sort of moment in the middle of the, the series in episode six, where we basically just break from the story structure and go on a, 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 a like a nostalgia trip about Black DC. And it's centered around the occasion of Palm Sunday. And for me, it's uh, I, I thought it was very important in the middle of the show to, we've got so much, so many intense scenes of violence. We've got so much uh, happening. We've brought people through not just the uprisings in 68, but by that point, you've heard about riots on the streets, police beating kids in Memphis. You've heard about Watts in 65. You've heard about the long, hot summer in 67. A lot has happened. You've heard a lot of military boots coming down the streets. You've heard a lot of glass breaking and and a lot of, I think, really traumatic scenes. And so for me, I wanted a thematic shift, hmm. a break, a breather, a way for people to catch their breath in the middle of the series. And we had no idea how to do that at all. Um, and I think basically where we landed was I just picked up interesting stories from our interviewees about their upbringings. It's just, it's something I kind of ask people. I love asking people about their childhoods uh, just because it's a good way to know, get to know people, not necessarily expecting that it's going to, you know, be an integral part of the show. And it was, and, and I think it actually makes the show. Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs. 
threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why Milk? Dairy Milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. You know, you're educating people to a certain level to be able to understand those stories. And how do you decide how much kind of pure education you're going to put in there about, say, you know, the movement before that, because you're you're sort of describing a transition that the movement was going through or maybe was going to go through at that time. Do you do it long and then cut it down? Or how do you how do you approach that? <laughs> Context is difficult. It's very difficult. There have been, and there very well could have been, you know, whole entire podcasts on very small pieces of this story. And there's lots of entire books written about things that we only spend a couple minutes on. And so there is a push and pull. There is a, a real tension between trying to make sure that people are properly oriented and trying to tell a damn story. And for us, obviously, I think. The weight is always on the story. But with that, I want to trust the listener. I want to trust the listener to where I want to be able to give you, obviously, the main ingredients, the things that make a person, the things that make a scene, you know, especially we're trying to translate things we're watching, the things we're listening to. And so I want to be able to give you what you need to understand and decipher what's in front of you as far as the audio goes. But also, I don't want to have to treat my listeners as if I've got to go and define redlining and give you a whole 45 second soliloquy about what redlining in America is. Now, I want to do the thing where in order to understand the present, you have to understand the past and you've got to go back to this specific moment in reconstruction and learn. You know, I don't want to, have to do all that because mm -hmm. I've got listeners who are reading too, who have the internet, who are smart and for whom hopefully this will be a spark of curiosity. And so I'm hoping that when you finish the show, if there's something that 
you need to learn more about that you're going out there and reading and listening more. I don't want this to be a textbook. I don't want your brain to come away from the show sort of preloaded with all the ideas. I think if there are things that you don't understand, leaving the thing, that's great. There are things I don't understand too. So, you know, we're, we're in the same boat. Who's sort of tuning up and down the amount of you that's in the show? Because you surface both obviously asking people questions, but, you know, there's there's little bits where you're introducing yourself and you're talking about, you say, oh, I, you know, I'm from North Carolina. And you kind of like have a little bit of chatter that kind of leads in. And I'm interested in whether producers want more of you and you would rather be less or you feel like it's important to have yourself in there as a guide for listeners. I don't like myself in things. And it's difficult for me. I think what you hear is just like a sort of personal tendency when I'm talking to people. I like to make connection. And frankly, I think it sounds kind of cheesy on tape. <laughs> but I have been convinced by our producers that those moments of connection, and they're, they're genuine connection. I'm actually eating cookies with people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in their homes. A lot of the, pe you know, the people I interviewed are people I'm still talking to today. And those are good pieces of information, not least of which because they're shorthand for why you should care about this person and for what being in the space with that person is like. And there's a bit more density of information in those interactions than I can give you in just a straight description of that person. Yeah. I mean, I personally, lo I, I love those moments. I feel like those moments kind of put me in the room as a listener in a way that they don't in writing when someone just describes what someone looks like, what the room looks like, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a sort of different level of that in floodlines because there's this interview that you do with Michael Brown, which I know you've talked about many times, but I didn't interview after floodlines. So I am sorry, <laughs> I have to return to this moment because I feel like it's one of the greatest moments in podcasting in like investigative podcasting. And so First, let's just talk about this in reference to Holy Week. It made me wonder if, were you looking for a moment like that in Holy Week, someone that you could sit in front of and say, there's some questions that no one's ever answered that I would like you to answer, or was that not feasible in this situation? Yeah, I think our aims were slightly different in a way that made that type of straight on interview not as much of a priority with Holy Week. So I think... In Floodlines, our mode was very much trying to resolve these questions or at least, uh, you know, have some measure of accountability um, in some way, in a way that we could provide. Uh, I think with Holy Week, I was much more interested in, with the vantage of time, trying to basically understand how this moment changed people, how the people we see today, you know, why they are the way they are today, and how they reflect how this place and this country have changed. So I think the aims are slightly different. Most of the people, frankly, that you would go to to ask about some of the big conflicts in, in Holy Week are dead. Mm -hmm. I think we got some of it when we talked to some of the White House folks about how they view things like the Fair Housing Act versus how they were viewed on the ground by activists. 
But, you know, the person that I would like to ask about that is Linda B. Johnson, and he's gone. Or the person I'd like to ask about COINTELPRO is J. Edgar Hoover, and he's gone. I don't know if the Michael Brown interview is a one-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, I hope it's not. Uh, but I think it might be a rare thing that somebody in that position who has become such a universally attached figure and a scapegoat in the way he has would even agree to an interview. It was, and it still is, somewhat surprising <laughs> that he did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think my hope as a journalist is that people do feel comfortable and, and they listen to stuff like that and understand that I'm going to be a rigorous but fair journalist when we speak. So hopefully it's not the last. And hopefully that interview highlights it. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who I'm trying to learn stuff from the interview. I'm not trying to come in with my mind made. Well, can I take you back to that show a little bit and that moment? So the show, I mean, the show is about Katrina and and similarly, you have all these amazing people who are caught up in Katrina and they're seeing it from different angles. And then you have former FEMA director, Michael Brown, who I can't imagine you thought you were going to get that interview. What, what, what was it like when you did? Yeah, that was, it was a late breaker. So we actually, we, we were deep into production when we finally got a bite back from, we, we sent feelers out to Michael Brown to the former chief of police, Eddie Compass, and to Ray Nagin, who was then in a correctional facility in Texas. And didn't hear much back and figured we were going to try to make our show without them. And we heard back from Michael Brown and also Eddie Compass in, in, the, in the 11th hour. And so essentially how the show ended up being produced, the interview with Michael Brown is pretty much, you know, the entirety of an episode almost. And then we bounce the interview back to Leanne, who was our main interviewee. And I had no idea how we were going to put a whole six hour interview into the middle of that show. And we just, we sat around for days and days and I was like, yeah, let's just run it. Just run it. And we chopped it down and ran it. And that's how it worked. How did you even keep a six-hour interview going for six hours? <laughs> uh, lots of caffeine. Um, he's a Diet Coke guy. I'm a Diet Coke guy. So we bonded over Diet Cokes. Um, no, I mean, I always want to give him credit for this because, again, he agreed to the interview. And during the interview, you can hear there's a lot of soul searching. There's a lot of, I think, real back and forth. He's a very game interviewee and he pushed back and our conversation i think both of us walked away learning more from it that's the type of thing i think you can keep going for hours there were hard questions for me there were probably some hard feelings in, in some places but i think we both walked into it not adversarial but also i think not chummy either and, and understanding that this was an interview and to try and answer these questions that nobody had tried to answer for some of the the people who had been victimized by the response. But the main answer is caffeine. <laughs> I feel like there's, there are some parallels between the shows 
it, it arises in both these shows, the way that sort of narratives get calcified around certain events. In Katrina, both things about the looting and also about why the levees even broke. There are these narratives that you're trying to dig in and understand how these frames got put into place. And then in Holy Week, it feels like similarly, you're looking back at how these narratives developed. And so I want to know first, where does that come from for you? And like my very superficial research would say that you grew up in a household with some interest in history, but I don't know if that's where it would come from. But have you always had an interest in like undoing the narratives that you see around you, I guess is the question I'm asking. Well, I think you, your research uh, would be correct. My father is a historian of black history and uh, he was a, he was a mid career uh, change to history. So mm. he actually, I, I was in middle school when he got his PhD. So I remember when he was working on his dissertation about lynching, and I think one of the things that really was formative for me is I would go with him when he was doing his research. A lot of his research was done at Howard University's Moreland Springer Library, which is a just fabulous research library full of things that even if you've been steeped in, you know, traditional Black history, documentaries, books, it's just they've got this collection called the Ralph Bunch Collection, which is just a trove of oral histories of firsthand interviews of people who were in the movement, who were in the freedom struggle. Mm. And just seeing, you know, the scraps of that from what my dad was doing and then having interests of my own and going and viewing things in that collection, other collections as well. I was convinced I was in the middle of, you know, doing black history presentations in school and seeing more so the real history in front of me and just how irreconcilable the two were. It was something that always stuck with me um, as a kid. I would say Katrina actually is kind of a cipher for me for understanding the world and understanding black history as well, because my hometown was destroyed by a flood in 1999. And so watching Katrina on the TV was kind of like watching what happened to Eastern North Carolina, but on a scale where Americans cared. Hmm. It was big enough for people across the country to reckon with and try to wrestle with. And I could see this interesting dynamic where this was before Obama. This was before any, you know, sort of. 2020 racial reckonings had happened and you had a bunch of black folks who were saying that what had happened to them was racist and they, they were treated as if they what they were saying was just incomprehensible and by default factually inaccurate they could not be victims of racism because america was not racist and i just had this kind of like breaking moment in my mind where even if I didn't know exactly what had happened to these people, the fact that you could have sort of these two narratives play out in real time in my face, it made me interested in trying to rescue and listen to the stories that hadn't been heard. Hmm. And I think the last piece of it 
Um, again, I did go to Morehouse and I did have a history class with Julian Bond. And he obviously is one of the the main brains behind Eyes on the Prize. And one of the reasons he did Eyes on the Prize is he's always talked about this thing he called the master narrative. He says America has its master narrative. And up until the movement, the master narrative was that Black Americans, their station in America was given to them because of their lack of industry or genetics or, you know, some divine order of America. And he says the work of the movement was to change that master narrative. And I've thought about the ways that the master narrative is made and changed over time. And for me, these big moments, things where what we tell ourselves is thrown into crisis about what America is, there's a biggest discrepancy between the master narrative and and the story from below. At what point would you say you sort of saw those questions you were asking as a possible career route? Or how did you sort of slip into journalism, given that was what was going on in your head? First of all, I'm dyslexic. And so journalism was never a obvious or even really rational or reasonable career path for me. Luckily, in my early 20s, was doing things that were just not rational or reasonable. In college, I found out that one way to make money, and I was in desperate need of money, was to go and do concert reviews for local all-weekly magazines and stuff. Hmm. Um, Found that I enjoyed it. Was never planning on doing anything in journalism for a full-time career. But then while I was working a health policy job in D.C., I was still doing some freelancing just to, you know, pay for my Xbox online membership and just kind of fell in love with it. Despite the fact that it was difficult, probably because of the fact that it was difficult. I don't know if I knew then that the type of journalism I'm doing now was going to be the path, Hmm. but looking back, you can see the interest there, but I never, I don't think it was a conscious decision. Were you headed for like a health policy career? Like I, th- I saw you got a master's in health policy. Oh, yeah. What does health policy Van Newkirk look like? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be the Surgeon General one day. Um, ah. Yeah, I, I, the, the goal was to go and get a PhD. My father has a PhD, as I said, and there was some 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 bad feeling in, in the household that I decided to go into journalism as opposed to academia. I think I finally got back on his right side like this year. So, yeah. (laughs) There wasn't any previous time, like when you first got a job at the Atlantic or where you could (laughs) say to him, look, come on, this is working for me. I think I'm finally there now. Um, Maybe, maybe, it may have been in the last couple of years, but uh, it's it's still trying to go back. You know, go back home. I'm from Eastern North Carolina, from rural Eastern North Carolina and going back home and tell people that I, I work for The Atlantic. I'm lucky if they know what it is, which is always a good sort of humbling. But now, you know, they finally carry it in the local CVS where my grandmother lives. And so I can point to it. I can say I, I, I actually write in that magazine that's on the second shelf at CVS in Elizabethtown. But it's, you know, it still feels new, even though I'm seven years in. And how would you say you evolved from the first work when you sort of were moving from health policy into journalism into, I mean, these very long, difficult to structure narrative stories. 
how did you sort of manage that transition? How did it come about? I'd say the transition was mostly organic. It was building block and building block. So when I first started at the Atlantic, I was a health policy and environmental justice reporter primarily and was writing mostly shorter form things. I came here in February 2016, which is a great time to start working as a politics reporter in a magazine. (laughs) And there was this guy, you know, who was running for president and he was saying a lot of weird things. And his name was Ben Carson. (laughs) (laughs) And what is Ben Carson up to right now? Uh, I don't know. Um, Maybe he still has that, you know, painting of himself in his living room. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? But he was at one point in that time, the front runner. Yeah. Always remind people. Yeah. So yeah, this weird guy, Ben Carson, and I decided I was going to try and, you know, cover the trail. I was covering it as a, you know, as a beat. I was going and working out a beat. But I think a lot of those skills are sort of the same skills that that I've used in writing larger stories and writing features. Uh, they're just more atomized. They're 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 in separate, discreetly packaged stories. Luckily, I had editors here like Yoni Applebaum who believed that I could take the beat writing I was doing and work on larger features and try more complicated stories. I was lucky to have really good mentoring from folks like Jim Fallows and Colin Murphy who basically told me, you know, chronology is my friend whenever I'm stuck in a story. But there was never a moment, and I still don't think there is now, where I said I was going to be a feature writer and that was it. I think my first actual feature was a story about North Carolina, the battle for North Carolina. Mm. And it was about how my home state had become the battleground for all these issues that now, you know, are sort of mainstream political problems. It was voting rights. It was voter ID laws after Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. And there was a long history of this push and pull in that state between those who would franchise Black people and those who would disenfranchise Black people. And so I was able to use a bit of reporting in my own experiences to to make something that I think helped show why what was happening in that state was the future of America. But that was, you know, it was in an outgrowth of what I was doing. How did Floodlines come about? Did it start as something that you wrote and turned into audio? Floodlines in 2017, I went to Puerto Rico and covered Hurricane Maria. Hmm. So I was there right after the storm doing, you know, daily dispatches about the power being out and what we know was of significant discrepancy and things like death toll and you know when Trump came and threw the paper towels at the crowd. But in the middle of all that, I was trying to think about what that story told us, you know, about deeper institutional issues in America. And actually kept coming back to myself as a high schooler when Katrina happened. And I kept thinking about how many questions about this country, about my own hometown, about that response had been left unanswered after watching Katrina unfold on TV. 
And so I came back and we didn't really have a podcast division back then. <laughs> you know, we had a radio closet with a single ISDN line and a, and a microphone. And I was thinking maybe we should do something about Hurricane Katrina. And I always thought it should be a podcast. Mm-hmm. Always thought it should be audio. I just love the form. I'm a big podcast listener. And I was anxious and eager to try something in the space. But we didn't really have the infrastructure for doing it. So it kind of sat in the back pocket until we did. And ended up being our first narrative project when we did. And that's more to the credit of my editors and bosses than to me because they thought it was an interesting story and they believed that it could be something that it eventually was. And then again, you, you have this situation where you, you, I mean, saying you're going to take on Katrina, you're going to look at Katrina. That's an enormous undertaking. You're talking about something that affected truly millions of people in a variety of ways. And then you end up with this woman, Leanne, who's both her story is extraordinary and horrific in many ways, but also she's just unbelievable at talking about it. And I always want to know how you found her, you know, like where did she come from and did you know right away? We met Leanne outside of her job at a pizza place in the mall. And literally when I shook her hand, I knew she was the heart of the story. Wow. It was immediate when she just started talking. And I was like, I would sit here and listen to her speak for as long as she will speak. She's a good talker, obviously. You've heard the show. Uh, she has a laser sharp recall she uh, of, of facts, which is important. Um, she's done a lot of that sort of critical self-analysis so she can tell you how she felt in the moment. And she's a poet. So she was putting together these turns of phrase that were just way better than anything I could narrate or say if, if you're interviewing me. We met her through our consultant, Katie Rechdahl, uh, who uh, she's a reporter in New Orleans. She's worked all across the city, longtime reporter. She knows everybody in New Orleans and actually gave birth to her son during the aftermath of the flood hmm. as the city was flooded. And so she actually evacuated with her newborn and Leanne to the same place. Oh, wow. So. She knew Leanne since then, since she was a kid. And you know, we asked her if she knew anybody who she thought might be interesting. The very first name, without hesitation, Leanne Williams, first name. Incredible piece of fortune. Uh, yes, yes. We, we started talking about this a little bit, but I'm very interested in the continuum of that show and the show that you've just done, Holy Week, and the sort of differences between them. And, and in, in Floodlines, you're sort of, almost having a reckoning about an event that's taken place. But Holy Week, it also is a little bit different in that it poses this question, what could have been different here? And that's a very difficult question because you you pose it, but it's impossible to answer in reality. So how did you approach kind of building around that kind of question? It's a question that I never expected to have a straight answer to what America would be like if King had not been killed, or even going deeper than that, what America would be like if it had actually accepted his diagnosis of the problem and moved 
in the way that he or other black activists thought they should in order to address it. Those are two sets of questions that I'm always answering. And to me, the the real drama is in the tension there and making people think about them rather than having a solid answer. Mm-hmm. I think you can get into the speculative fiction of it. You could go in and actually imagine America where there were no poverty and reparations in 1970. But to me, that's kind of beside the point. The reason I ask that question, the reason I ask every single person we interview that question specifically was I think it's kind of a trigger or a gateway to put them back in that moment right before he was killed in 68 and to just be able to see the horizon from their eyes, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It's less about me trying to do a watercolor version of America today that looks different, you know, that, that's, that's just and equal and we're all, you know, holding hands and saying Kumbaya than it is to really understand this remarkable sense of possibility that was the hallmark of the civil rights movement. I think it's a part of that movement that actually is so obvious that it gets lost. The most important part of the movement wasn't the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act or these bills or the fact that people could go to integrated schools or, you know, the, the fact that they could go and have a baby in, in, in a hospital with white doctors. It was a fact that for the very first time in American history, Black folks believed and could credibly believe that their children would have better lives than them. And I wanted to really be able to sit in that moment and really just latch on to that, the novelty and the radicalness of that sense of possibility. And so when I ask, I ask John Burrow Smith that, and I think that's the one we actually use on the tape. And, um, you know, his version of it is he was looking forward to this, this America where, where Black folks had power. Mm-hmm. And just that moment or that yearning, that longing, those are the things we're trying to capture. And what is it like for you to, you're posing the question over and over. And so for the duration that you're creating the show, you are also living in the space of history of that moment of this could have gone differently. This could have gone, not just King getting killed, but what happened afterwards, how people responded. And what is it like for you to to sit in that space? Well, this is, I think, clearly a personal project. And in between the production of Floodlines and the production of Holy Week, I lived a lot of life. My mother passed away in 2020. She passed away from breast cancer. And so she was ill while we were making Floodlines. And it was the great honor of my life to be able to play that show for her while she could still hear it. Mm. And so she passed after that. I had my second child in that interim and there was a whole pandemic. Uh, There is a whole pandemic, I should say. And so lots of, lots of things in life changed. One of the things that I have reflected on most about my mother in the time since then, the connection between my mother and my daughter, 
mother was never able to actually hold my daughter, which is one of the things that moves me a lot now because I think about when my mother was born. She was born in 1964. It was in no way, shape or form for her guaranteed that she would even be granted the rights to citizenship in this country when she was born in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I think about what she was able to hope and dream for, for her granddaughter, my daughter, in the next 20, 30, 40 years of her life, what she's going to be able to accomplish and expect in her life. And that basic sort of sense of possibility, that desire for a better world for the people that come after us, it's something that for most of my life I took for granted. It's just a part of being an American, just part of being a person in the world. But really going back and thinking critically about her life, really going back and interviewing older Black folks especially, I came to understand how radical it truly is. And so for me, part of this project is trying to rigorously approach where that comes from and what it means to have in Dr. King a symbol of that hope eradicated. And when you say, you know, this this project, you're referring here specifically to Holy Week, but it's hard not to look back when I look at your stories you know, you wrote about your mother in a story about voting rights in America. You wrote this big story about land theft in Mississippi. Uh, you wrote a story about voter fraud, accusations of voter fraud in Texas. And I wonder to what extent you think of these as one story at all, or they're just things that capture your interest in that moment. How connected are they to you and how you tell them? I do think of them as a single story. Uh, for me, it's always a challenge to try and explain to people what my beat is. Um, when I want to be a troll, I tell them it's the 14th Amendment. I think that covers just about every single topic in America today. But I'm, I'm often toggling between environmental justice, between the history of race and racialization in America. And to me, they're, they're all one story. And I'm trying to tell the story about how the conditions of marginalization in America have made and shaped the present. That's it. That's one story. Whether it manifests in, you know, kids being poisoned by lead in New Orleans or farmers losing their land in the Mississippi Delta or people seeing that they had been abandoned by the government in New Orleans, like that's a story. That, that That's it. And so I just view it as, you know, I, I'm, I'm opening a new chapter every time I started a new draft. When I was listening back through through Holy Week, there's there's a sort of obvious thing for a listener that might be looming over it, which is the 2020 protests, the George Floyd protests. And it comes up once. This guy, Tony Gittins, talks about he went out when the riots were happening after Martin Luther King died, he feels like he has to go out in 2020. That's the only time it comes up. And I've, if I, unless I missed it, there's no point of you saying, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's how this connects. And it made me wonder, how much do you 
try to lead people to that versus put it out there and assume that they are going to make that connection. And what do you want that connection to be? Well, I was hoping that people would make the connections that they felt were appropriate. For me, it's more so about the years after those protests than the protests themselves. I think I was really interested in how in the sets of reactions that took place in 68 and how uh, you have this first reaction in black communities and you have a, a second reaction in white communities and how they shape the world we are given today. I think right now, we it's been three years since that summer of 2020. We have enough distance to, to take stock and inventory of how the world has changed since then, how politics, how the opinions of especially white Americans have been formed around this black demand for justice that was on the streets in 2020. And I say there are some similarities, uh, I think. Um, But also for me, 2020 was the moment in my reporting career, I wasn't actually on the streets. I wasn't able to go to the, I was watching those from hospice. Uh, I was taking care of a lot of things in my life. And so I am interested really in how people who were more present, who were thinking about these things, who were, who were like Tony, who were marching, how they see any parallels between 68 and 2020. And Tony brought it up. I think, you know, pretty organically. I never asked him about it. He brought it up organically. Hmm. And a lot of people did that we interviewed. So I never want to be didactic. I never want to be somebody who was like, oh, you know, you should be thinking about this moment when you listen to my show. Uh, Because the hope is if we do it well enough, if we are good enough storytellers, the things you need to be thinking about, you will be when you're done. Well, Van, thanks for coming on this show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Van Newkirk for coming on. His latest podcast is called Holy Week. All of the episodes are out now. Jackie Sajiko is our editor this week. Our show notes are from Megan Valley. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. We produce this show in partnership with Vox. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.